America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Quite a lot going on in the news cycle today. A terrorist attack, a press conference that is sure to uh, get both sides of the aisle in this country, Republican, Democrat, even further dug into, well, whether they believe that Trump is part of some conspiracy or there was surveillance of Trump by the previous administration. You know, the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence uh, dropping some rhetorical bombs today. We'll get into that and, and much more. But first, the terrorist attack in London. Um, these are incidents that are far too frequent now in Western society and, in fact, around the world as well, including in the Muslim world. But I'm going to focus now on the attack in the context of how it is a strike against Uh, It is a strike out at Western civilization. This is an attack on all of us, on our way of life, on free societies. It is, in fact, rooted in an ideology. It does not come from disaffection. It doesn't come from lack of options in life. It's not the result of some basic frustration. If poverty caused terrorism, there would be a lot more poor terrorists around the world. In fact, what we find is that most of the Uh, Well-known jihadists, most of the most notorious and evil jihadists of recent decades have been either solidly middle class in their backgrounds or, in fact, very wealthy, as we saw in the case of Osama bin Laden, perhaps the most famous jihadist of all time. Um, So uh, we have some sound to play for you from this situation. Uh, Here's what happened earlier today. 48. We know there are a number of casualties, including police officers. But at this stage, we cannot confirm numbers or the nature of these injuries. And you have Scotland Yard weighing in on the counterterrorism investigation. A full counterterrorism investigation is already under the way. Uh, This is led by the Met's Counterterrorism Command. At this stage, I will confirm what we know has happened, but I will not speculate. Now... It seems that most of the media is willing to state the obvious here that this is a terrorist attack. It's a terrorist attack that uses similar tactics and uh, procedures to others we have seen perpetrated by jihadists. In this case, the early news reports, uh, the early news reports said that he was a man of Asian descent. In the UK context, Asian often means because of demographics in the UK, they mean South Asian and usually Uh, They're referring to either Indian, Pakistani, or Bangladeshi, or Afghan. Uh, That's what they mean by, when they, in this case, when they said Asian, because those are what the early reports said. We've since seen uh, photos of the alleged attacker. He is dead, by the way. He was shot by a police officer, and it seems that he was of South Asian descent. 
Uh, we don't have a name yet. There was a name that was released earlier today that was now retracted. Um, if we get the name throughout the course of the show, there this is still a breaking news story. There are events coming in as I'm on air, and we will look very closely at all of it. Here's what we do know. He used a vehicle, and he drove uh, drove the vehicle across a bridge in order to mow down as many pedestrians as he could. Then he got all the way up to the gate of uh, Westminster, and from there stabbed a police officer with a knife and was then shot, not killed on the scene, but later died of his wounds from that exchange with a second police officer. So he ran over Westminster Bridge. Uh, About 20 people were injured by the car. We have at least four dead at this point in this uh, whole... I'm sorry, three people, including a police officer, were killed, and the the terrorist separately was shot. Uh, We can look at this and we can draw immediate parallels to other similar attacks with perpetrators that have largely the same motive, and I'll get into that in in a minute. I, I do have some advantage here over any other radio host that you may be listening to uh, today or anyone that you're seeing hosting a show on this issue because I worked for the CIA's Counterterrorism Center as well as the NYPD Intelligence Division, which is the main counterterrorism unit of the NYPD, the 40,000-plus strong NYPD here in New York City. I uh, worked the Times Square bombing case back in 2010, Faisal Shahzad. Uh, So I know how the investigative aspects of this work, and I'll try to give you my sense of where all of that is going. But first, you look at this and immediately the parallels come to mind. This is like the attack in Nice, France, where another man of Muslim, uh, Muslim background as part of a jihadist act ran over, uh, I believe it was over 60 people, murdered them um, at a celebration in a national holiday in France, in Nice, an otherwise beautiful Mediterranean coastal city, uh, complete terror and destruction there. Uh, you've seen this happen in the Christmas market in Germany. And, of course, here at Ohio, at Ohio State University, there was also a similar incident. The, the jihadists have been planning this for a while. This plays into a lot of their tactical approaches. They realize that... All they have to do is create chaos and murder and destruction. And their goal is met because they are not, in fact, trying to promote some specific agenda item. There's no way. And this is where we depart with the American left and with the progressive left all across Europe. You cannot reason with these people. There is nothing that we can do that would stop them from doing this other than seek them out and destroy them. We stop them in their attack planning when we can, and when we find them abroad, we destroy them. That's the only thing that we can really do. This ideology has been around for quite a long time. Because we're in an era of uh, machinery and mass media, one person is much more able to not just inflict a mass casualty attack, but also to have that mass casualty attack picked up by media sources around the world, which unfortunately magnifies the message to those within the jihadist community who believe that murder and mayhem, that the slaughter of innocents in the streets of any Western city, any Western capital, does not matter. It could be in the smallest town in America, or it could be right outside Parliament in London. 
the message is largely the same. The motivation is exactly the same. And it is that the jihadists from within the Muslim world believe they are in an existential, civilizational struggle against us. This is not in response to some U.S. policy. That is where the American progressives and most of the Democratic Party goes deeply wrong. This is not in response to historical injustice. These are not misguided social justice warriors. These are homicidal lunatics who have taken it upon themselves to wage, in this case, we're assuming a lone wolf attack, but very often, and this did not get nearly enough press, when we look into these incidents, we find out that there is some connection to either the Islamic State proper in Raqqa and its environs in Syria, or other uh, jihadist groups, including al-Qaeda. They can remote control these attacks and have in many cases, not just telling an individual that they should strike out in the name of jihad, but where they should strike, how they should strike, what tools they should use, what sort of surveillance they should do. This is unfortunately one of the byproducts of the amazing era of technology in which we all currently live. Hundreds of thousands of Twitter accounts, just this reported yesterday, suspended for advocating and trying <clears throat> to expand upon jihadist ideology and philosophy, for pushing for people to do exactly what this individual did. We are at war. My friends, it is unfortunate. We are not just at war in Iraq and Afghanistan and other battlefields, both overt and covert around the world against this jihadist enemy. We are in a civilizational struggle. And there is this entity that is a minority from within the broader Islamic faith. But unfortunately, it is powerful enough and potent enough to change our way of life and, yes, to destroy our own societies unless we take this threat quite seriously. Jihadism and the terrorist attacks that spring from it are different than criminality and standard violence within very large societies. These are attacks that are meant to keep us in a state of perpetual fear, to bleed our treasuries as well as our people, to force us to spend, to force us into positions of overreach to try and deal with this in various countries around the world. All they have to do is destroy. We can do some amount of offense, but we are often on defense. Because unlike the jihadists, we have something to defend. We have something to protect. Their world is purely theoretical. The black banners of jihad flying all over this planet. It's not going to happen anytime soon. It's not going to happen in their lifetime. Certainly not for a shaheed, for a martyr. They know that they're done. But yet they've bought into this ideology and they think they're making a down payment for the future, for future generations of Mujahideen, for Islamic holy warriors. They think this is a step in that process. We already have societies that sure are imperfect. We talk about those imperfections all the time. But they are worth defending. And they are the best societies in the world. And Western civilization and the ideals that it represents are in fact the most important ideals in human existence right now. And they are of great benefit to the billions of people around the world, even those who live outside of what we would consider countries that are part of Western civilization. And what that term even encompasses is something we could discuss another time. But all decent, democratic, and rule-of-law-based countries could be put under that umbrella. 
They want to destroy that. They want to replace it with laws that come from the Sharia, or which interpretation of the Sharia, which which of the of the major schools of Sharia is this Hanbali? I mean, we can go down all the different versions of Sharia that are out there. The schools of interpretation, they don't care. They have adopted a very simplistic version of all of this, which is Sharia supremacism, which is the destruction of Western civilization and the imposition of Islamic norms. We can look at this and say to ourselves, well, it's just a small minority. How dangerous can this really be? Let's not overreact, the press will tell us. In fact, they'll tell us that Islamophobia is the greatest threat we face. In fact, they will tell us that it is our own bigotry in the face of these attacks that specifically single all of us out for being non-jihadists. That's the great threat here. It's bigotry in response to this. Not that our society is under attack. Not that they are trying to emplace C4 at the load-bearing civilizational structures. They're trying to bring us apart piece by piece. To those who say this is just a small minority from the broader Islamic world, I would say you are correct on the numbers, but you are wrong when it comes to the scale of the threat. How many? Again, something not taught in schools. How many did it take? for the revolution, the small revolution as it started out and then became much bigger within the Soviet Union to plunge nearly half the world in the darkness of totalitarianism. Didn't take many to begin with. And that was within living memory. The jihadists see this and they think to themselves, well, this is surely possible. The democracies are weak. America is divided from within. They're not even willing to say whom the enemy is. And they're not willing to stand up and fight. Well, they're wrong on that point. At least some of us are. A lot of us are. I don't just mean, and God bless them, United States military, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies that are engaged in a constant battle and, of course, are on guard, have continued vigilance against this threat. But all of us as well need to understand each and every single person listening to this broadcast in this country right now must take it upon himself and herself to know that we are in an existential struggle with an ideology that seeks to destroy us and our way of life. And it is not a threat that we should overlook. It's not a threat that we can minimize. We need to embrace this struggle and each one of us in our own way take up the barricade, take up the line and hold it. Welcome back, team. Terrorist attack in London. Many people mowed down by a car on a bridge. A police officer stabbed and killed. The assailant killed in response by some uh, good work on the spot by London police. This happened right near Parliament, happened on Westminster Bridge. Uh, and we have the British House of Commons leader, David uh, Liddington, making a statement about it. For, uh, 46. The alleged assailant... Uh, was uh, shot by armed police. Um, a, an air ambulance is currently attending the scene to remove the casualties. There are also reports of further violent incidents in the vicinity of the Palace of Westminster, but I hope colleagues on all sides will appreciate that it would be wrong of me here to go into further details until we have confirmation from the police and from the House security authorities about what is going on. All right, nothing particularly new there from the uh, House of Commons leader, but 
you did have the mayor of London uh, tweeting in response to this that terror attacks are, quote, part and parcel of living in a big city. That's Mayor Sadiq Khan. Uh, it is a reality, I'm afraid, that London, New York, other major cities around the world have got to be prepared for these sort of things. That means being vigilant, uh, and it means being uh, having a police force that is in touch with communities. It means the security services being ready, but it also means exchanging uh, ideas and best practices. Um, so I have to disagree. It, it does not have to be a part and parcel of living in a big city. Uh, this is the responsibility of, uh, unfortunately, uh, only one faith tradition gives us jihadism. There's only one faith tradition that gives us this. Uh, it, is not a, it is not a realistic concern that uh, the Amish or Unitarians or uh, you know, Roman Catholics in this country or in other European countries are about to mow down a bunch of people and kill them all in the name of the faith. That's not a realistic concern. We should perhaps address it in those honest terms. Uh, What to do about this is an incredibly complicated question um, because we need Muslim allies in the fight, especially in Muslim majority countries, but also very much here at home. But this is, I believe that people are running out of patience with this, and I can understand why. And with the mayor, um, the uh, Muslim British mayor of London, saying that this is unfortunately just the way it is, well, it, it hasn't always been the way it is. In fact, there were many decades when it was not the case. And people are going to look at this and say to themselves, what can we do to stop this? And they're going to look at refugee flows and they're going to look at ideological infiltration of Western countries by Islamists and by hardliners and will come to very rational decisions about whether they want more or less of that and what they can do to prevent it. And there are people out there who are just standing on the sidelines waiting to point the finger and say Islamophobe, xenophobe, racist, bigot, any of the above. We are all growing very tired of it, though. We're all growing very tired of being told that we should not single out any one population for additional scrutiny because the threat comes from within that population. Okay, what is the answer then? It seems to me that, in a sense, this mayor in London has given us what the progressive left believes the answer is, which is just suffer, deal with it, try to be vigilant, sure, but this is just going to keep happening. Well, we don't want it to keep happening. And if the answer the left gives us is that it has to keep happening or else anything you do to stop it is xenophobic and bigoted and hateful, people are going to look at immigration policy. They're going to look at surveillance of specific communities. They're going to say to themselves, uh, we're not willing to sign off on this is just the way it is. And you can see this divide uh, getting deeper much more quickly than uh, it has even in in recent years, I think. Uh, So this is a jihadist attack in a major city. And it will be followed by others just like it. And we will be talking about this, unfortunately, for many months and years to come. i got to go into a break here. When we come back, we'll talk about Nunez's press conference. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call 
call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Our team, welcome back. We're joined by John Schindler. He's a national security columnist for the New York Observer, former NSA intelligence analyst and counterintelligence officer uh, at 20 Committee on Twitter. John, great to have you. Great to be here, Buck, as always. Yeah, man. Welcome to the new and improved Freedom Hut, my friend. Uh, so, look, it, we've. It, it sounds improved already. Go ahead. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, we have quite a press conference today with uh, House uh, Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez. Uh, I want to play some of these bites. I want you to react to them, and then I want you to just lay out for us what you see here as the overall story, where we are and where we are not in yeah. terms of both. Russia Trump collusion and or alleged collusion and alleged surveillance of Trump. A lot of alleged here. Let's start with Nunez, though. This is what he said today out in the open at a press conference. Uh, let's. I have seen I have seen intelligence reports that uh, clearly show uh, that uh, the president elect and his team uh were, I guess, at least monitored and disseminated out in intelligence and what appears to be raw, or or I shouldn't say raw, but uh, intelligence reporting channels. Uh, People are asking some questions here, John. Yes, as they should be. Um, I I, got to tell you, I was not impressed by what Representative Nunez had to say, and I have some very serious questions here. I, I used to deal with the sort of signals intelligence he's talking about all the time um, that is involving U.S. persons, which is it's called masking, where you're, the identity of the U.S. person does not include it in the report uh, unless there's a specific request for an unmasking that is unveiling who it is, which is a very sensitive and kind of rare matter in the intelligence community. I think for Mr. Nunez to imply this was just you know floating around in the intelligence community, I, I think that's pretty deceptive, to be honest with you. And, and I'm not sure what he's trying to do here. Now, he also said that these reports had nothing to do with Russia. Today, I briefed well, the president on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how it uh, relates to uh, President-elect Trump and uh, his transition team and the concerns that I have. As I said earlier, uh, there'll be more information. Uh, hopefully, by Friday, the NSA is cooperating uh, very, very well. And lastly, I'll say that uh, the reports that I was able to see uh, did not have uh, anything to do with Russia or the Russian investigation or any tie to the Trump team. Two things here, John. Uh, Incidental collection, he says that. Explain to us what he's trying, to the degree you can, uh, what he's trying to get into here. And also, he says there's nothing to do with the Russia investigation. What do you make of that? Well, let me deal with the second question first. I, I think that's a very strange statement and does not comport at all with what my friends at NSA have told me. I used to be an NSA, of course. Uh, I don't know where Representative Nunez gets the, it's not Russia at all. What is it, Belgium, maybe? I mean, this is all very weird. Um, I don't know what to make of that. Let me talk about incidental collections. It's a very, very important point. The president himself you know, started this debate about saying he was wiretapped by President Obama and the intelligence community, which is just not true. That's Wiretap has a meaning that is not what happened here, as everyone, even Representative Nunez himself today, yet again reiterated the president was not wiretapped, Trump Tower was not wiretapped. Wait, can I, it may can I have, jump in really quickly here with just Nunez yeah. also said it was done, it, he said it was done legally. Fifth- concerned that any of the surveillance well, was done illegally? Yeah. 
Corey was incidental, but a, but a legal, legal that's a great Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I believe it was all done legally. Um, I think it was all obtained legally. I think the question is, is uh, was, it, was it masked? Uh, you know, why was it unmasked if it was unmasked? Because it appears like we have new information about additional unmaskings. And then who was on the dissemination list? And why was the dissemination list so far if it was such specific information about the Trump transition? All right, John, sorry. So go back to incidental collection, but then also deal with the other aspects that, that Nunez brings up there. But first, you're saying incidental. Yeah. Yeah, let me break this down a little bit. For incidental collection means that NSA or another related intelligence agency, a foreign, you know, the, the Brits, the Canadians, whatever, in our signals intelligence system, are listening to a validated and legal foreign intelligence target, a foreign diplomat, a foreign spy, a foreign terrorist. And if you're an American and you call them, you're not the target, but you could easily wind up being collected. And that appears to be, based on what Representative Nunez says, what happened here. No American, certainly no member of the Trump team, was a target of U.S. or allied intelligence, but they wound up getting collected because they were calling people, foreigners, who were valid and legal intelligence targets. By the way, that itself raises a whole host of questions about why Team Trump was so chatty with foreigners, Russian or not, who were valid foreign intelligence targets under U.S. law. But I'll, we'll set that aside for right. now. Uh, um, his... The other possibility, of course, is that these were collected under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, uh, which has been discussed a lot lately. Uh, and Nunez himself said that the Trump team was a target of multiple FISA warrants today. FISA warrants are obtained by a special federal court, which sees top-secret information and says yay or nay, whether you can, for a fixed period of time, collect intelligence against foreigners. But there are probably going to be Americans on that line, too. Uh, and that's why FBI and NSA use this. Um, Nunez said there were multiple FISA warrants against Trump today, which I gotta tell you, I used to do this for a living. That's a massively classified fact. To name any specific American who's a target of a FISA warrant is top secret plus plus. I am just in shock that the chair of the House Intelligence Committee would say this to the media. He either broke a raft of federal laws today, frankly, or the president gave him to go ahead to do that, which would be legal which also makes us look like, by the way, one more massive White House setup. I think we need to know what's going on here. Right. On the legality point, it is interesting. I, I keep telling everybody, and this also ties into Trump's whole, well, I'm going to have the House investigate this. He's the commander in chief. He has real-time declassification authority, right? Every administration, right. Does, every president rather does. And that's just, that's understood. That's not in dispute. If the president says it's unclassified and the public needs to know, that is the law. Every president, every commander-in-chief. Right. So he may have but, done that with Nunez. He may not have, but it still then raises the question of... Absolutely. I, I think we need to know what happened here, because if he authorized Nunez to go out and run with this, that, frankly, I'm not a lawyer, but that looks like collusion with the chair of the House committee that is investigating possible presidential collusion with Moscow. This gets very weird very fast, my friend. The whole I mean, thing I, is getting very weird very fast, John. Yeah. I, 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 but can, <laughs> can you deal with the unmatched... The un so here's, here's, as I see but, it here, and look, I'm, I'm a former... CIA analysts, as you guys all listening know, I dealt with uh, insurgency and, uh, you know, more, I, you know, I, I didn't deal with the signals side of things, signals intelligence. Right. John is a former right. NSA-er, so that wasn't, this is right in, in his wheelhouse. So explain to me um, what it is here when he's talking about unmasking. It seems yeah. to be that what they're saying is, look, there was some intelligence collection going on and someone got wind of something that touched on on some Trump associate or Trump himself or whatever. You know, we don't know, but something Whatever. this we is what Nunez is saying. And then somebody 
And this would have been, or correct me if I'm wrong, this would have then been, if not an illegal step, certainly an unethical step, decided to go through the unmask process for political point scoring. Is right. That- and, and, and if what Nunez has said is true, and I have to tell you, that's a very big if, ethics and laws were violated here by the Obama administration. But i got to tell you, I'm very skeptical of what Mr. Nunez said, because let me explain how this works. Give me a minute here. Um, if NSA collects, you know, intercepts information between a valid foreign intelligence target, let's say, you know, a, a foreign terrorist operating in Yemen or whatever, and there's some American, what we call a U.S. person, that is an American or someone legally resident in the United States, is calling up the foreign terrorist in Yemen. Well, and of course, that gets reported, the fact that, you know, someone's talking about a future terrorist operation with a known, say, al-Qaeda operative or whatever operative in Yemen. That gets reported in very limited distribution intelligence channels. Let's say the FBI, because they do their job, is really curious who that American is, right? They probably want to figure out who that American is and perhaps set up surveillance on that American. They turn around to NSA and say, gosh, we really need to know who that U.S. person is. NSA will send a special report to the FBI, very limited distribution, identifying that American person for the purposes of legal investigation and, you know, who knows, maybe prosecution if someone's violating our rafts of terrorism laws. To put this in your sort of counterterrorism former world, Buck. Right. What it, you know, but this is very limited distribution. What Nunez has done is accused the previous White House of basically treating unmasking as a political game. I highly doubt that happened, but if that did happen, that's a very, very serious matter. Let's make very clear that a lot of laws and rules were broken if that happened. How do you think we? How do you think we got to the Flynn phone call? Because people are tying all these things. Oh, to- I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. And despite the House Republicans' efforts on Monday during the marathon testimony with FBI Director Comey and NSA Director Rogers to get them to sort of point the finger at the intelligence community, I'm pretty sure that leak happened much closer to the powers circles in D.C. And that was a case where, look, I mean, if you're NSA and you've got, you know, the future national security advisor getting all chatty with the Russian ambassador, that's that's a pretty exciting thing, but that's also going to be in very limited channels of report distribution. Someone leaked it. I'm very confident it wasn't NSA or CIA, but probably someone much closer to the White House. So what... What and by the way, I want to ask you, and we're gonna actually, you know, John, can we go to a break now and, and take you on the other Absolutely. side so we can? All right, yeah, we're, we're right talking. To, we're talking to John Schindler, everybody. He's a former NSA, currently an, uh, a writer for the New York Observer on intelligence and national security issues. Uh, Observer.com for his latest. And John, uh, stay with us, team. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. We've got John Schindler on the line. He's a for, he's a former uh, NSA analyst and also counterintelligence officer. He writes for the New York Observer. Go to Observer.com for his latest must-read analysis of national security. Uh, John, we've got about five minutes and change here. I wanted to get you on a few more things. We have uh, allegations about Manafort. Here's what Sean Spicer had to say. His representation of foreign clients is public and similar to the work of Tony Podesta, a Clinton campaign fundraiser whose brother John chaired Hillary Clinton's campaign. Last year, not last decade, Tony Podesta lobbied against sanctions for Russia's largest bank. And John Podesta, Clinton's campaign chair, sat on the board of a Russian-based energy company. This was something tied to Hillary Clinton. It was the face of the failed Russia reset policy. Okay, so all right. So now we're close. going into Hillary. Now we're going into all Hillary. The Podesta stuff, by the way, is true and worth people knowing. But talk, talk to me about this Manafort stuff for a minute. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I reported on some of the Podesta group shady ties with Russia last year, and, and it's unpleasant stuff. But the Manafort thing is just off the charts. This is Paul Manafort, who the White House claims they hardly know, but of course, he's a longtime GOP political operative. He's known the president since the late 1970s, uh, and he, of course, was the campaign manager for the pivotal period when then-candidate Trump became the Republican nominee, and he had to step down in August on some of his ties to Moscow became a little too obvious. So Manafort's a known guy. He was making, between 2006 and 2009 or so, $10 million a year, in addition to whatever else he was doing, for representing Putin's interests abroad and giving the Kremlin a better face. This was arranged through a Kremlin-linked oligarch named Oleg Deripaska, a well-known Putin-connected guy. This is super shady stuff. Uh, and Manafort is, is in a lot of trouble here because th this doesn't look good. And, of course, I only have two questions. Did the president know that his campaign manager was making $10 million a year carrying Putin's water? And if he didn't know, why the hell didn't he know that? Um, there's no way to make this look good. This is, this is really bad stuff, and it moves the whole issue with Trump and the Russians to a different level. We're talking big money now. This isn't Trump change. This is real money. And I've maintained, as you know, for a long time, that Trump's relationship with Moscow, although it involves intelligence, is fundamentally about money, and uh, Manafort's become part of that in a very public way right now. What do you think happens here, John? Well, um, you know, if I were Paul Manafort at $10 million a year, he can afford some really good lawyers. I'd certainly want to, uh, you know, start talking to the Department of Justice about a deal because this, this isn't going to be good for him. The Ukrainian authorities want him sent back over there for his illegal, illegal work for the former government there. Uh, you know, Paul Manafort kind of got thrown under the bus by the White House, frankly, this week on after Monday's debacle in, on, on Capitol Hill, Sean Spicer, whom he put on, basically implied, like, you know, Paul Manafort. I mean, we hardly know the guy. Who's that? Uh, if I were Paul Manafort and that hand-washing being so public, I, I'd be talking to the Department of Justice, to be honest with you. John, I mean, what is, in your mind at this point, what is the, uh, what is the best case scenario for the Trump administration with all this Russia tie stuff? What is the worst case scenario? Honestly. Well, actually, I think... I think, honestly, this is perfectly time, because what Representative Nunez did today was, I'll be shocked if it wasn't coordinated with the White House, I can't prove that, but I'd, I'd be shocked if it wasn't. This was a counterattack on the entire idea of a dispassionate investigation of whatever Trump's Russia ties are, whatever that mysterious entity is. And let me say, I fully favor, and we know today we need it, after this debacle today, we need an independent, nonpartisan investigation of that, but let's deal with that later. What we now know is sufficiently troubling that the awkward questions get asked. And what Nunez did today was either a successful effort to kill off his own congressional committee's investigation of Trump's ties with Russia, which the FBI, we now know, thanks to Director Comey, is pursuing on its own, or it will be the beginning of this getting really rough for the Trump administration. Nunez was too obvious tied up with, I mean, on Monday, Representative Nunez was constantly complaining on camera about leaks of classified, and yet today he seems to have leaked a whole bunch, a whole bunch classified, which looks very strange. Uh, today was a big day. The history books when they get written will show that today, 22 March to 2017, was a big day in where this is going. And I, my hunch tells me, unless Team Trump starts coming clean fast, this isn't going anywhere good for them. Okay, but give me, what is the, is, is there a scenario here where Manafort has bad... Uh, you know, ha had some bad stuff going on overseas, but it's really just Manafort and it stopped and, and also well, some bad judgment sure. from go ahead. 
Well, yeah, it could be Manafort, it could be Roger Stone, it could be Mike Flynn, all people who were close to Trump who had very weird and possibly illegal ties to Russians. At some point, you have to start asking how many of these isolated cases have to happen for us to start asking questions about, sorry to go there, a la Watergate, what did the president know and when did he know it? Uh, my suspicion is the White House is now going to be working basically full-time on tamping this down. It's not clear to me they can. I, I think today was a watershed event that showed that the Trump administration wants to play hardball, that they're not going to admit they've lied publicly about all of this, and it's going to get pretty weird for all of us pretty soon. You think anyone ends up going to, anyone ends up going to jail over any of this? Yes, yes I, I, I do think so. Yeah, I think that's uh, well, what, what aspects of it? I mean, what would be theoretically um, the crime that a Trump associate may have been caught up in here? I keep asking, including some uh, former federal prosecutors, this. What would be the crime, well, you think? The most obvious thing would be acting as an agent of a foreign power without filing appropriate paper, paperwork with the National Security Division of the Justice Department, which we know Mike Flynn didn't do. Uh, it's not clear that Paul Manafort has done. Um, it, they, no, but they uh, usually don't send people to prison for that, right? I mean, that's, that's... Well, they get you on that when they can't get you on espionage because espionage is very hard to prove. Um, no, people don't usually go to jail, but they might. And, of course, the nightmare scenario for the Trump people has got to be all they need is one person to start cooperating with the feds, and it all starts coming apart. Um, Representative Adam Schiff, the ranking member that is a Democratic member of the HIPC, the House Intelligence Committee today, said he had previously said we have circumstantial evidence of collusion with Team Trump and Russia. Today on live television, he said, no, it's more than circumstantial. Given that he's a former federal, federal prosecutor who put an FBI agent in jail for spying for Moscow, I think we might want to pay attention to that. All right. We're going to keep a very close eye on all of this. Uh, you guys will all want to check out John Schindler's latest on The Observer. Go to Observer.com. He's a former NSA intelligence and counterintelligence, counterintelligence officer and intelligence analyst. Uh, John, great to have you, sir. Looking forward to having you uh, sure uh, with us in the Freedom, in the Freedom Hut. Can't wait. Bye. Thanks, brother. All right. Take care. Uh, guys, phone lines are open. Obviously, a lot to talk about here. Uh, what do you think about the Nunez press conference? What are your thoughts on how we should respond to this terrorist attack in London? We've got that plus health care, Obamacare repeal, and a whole lot more coming up. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, Team Buck. So much to get through, so much to talk about today. I really appreciate you spending your time with me here. Uh, I hope you find the conversation to be particularly uh, enlightening, especially with some of the guests we have on. Uh, we will be joined by uh, Ion Hersey Ali later. Uh, we just had planned this to, to talk to her about a report on radicalization uh, but given the events of today with this terrorist act, uh, to have Ion on would be will be a uh, particularly uh, worthwhile and uh, illuminating discussion, I believe. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. And you also have new. That's the phone number. Call it. Light them up, team. You have Nunez speaking about all this surveillance, uh, you know, signals intelligence stuff uh, that's going on, and. Um, we have John Schindler from the NSA to join and talk about it. You know, all these allegations about signals intelligence, all these allegations about surveillance. Um, a lot, a lot to talk about, a lot going on. So uh, with that all in mind, I wanted to get to some of your calls. And let's start with uh, Ken in Mississippi on WBUV. What's up, Ken? 
How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Is uh, Mr. Schindler still there? Schindler, no. He, he's he gone on to do some other stuff. John Schindler's his name. Oh, okay. Well, he revealed who he was by his comments on your show. He's a partisan Democrat. and He may be NSA, but he, uh, formerly, he's formerly NSA, obviously, but yeah. Former, formerly NSA, he's a, he's a partisan Democrat. You tried to ask him, is you know, is that the only result is that it's going to happen? No. I mean, if Manafort, for example, if, I mean, Manafort's been away from his campaign since what, six months ago? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe Trump didn't, uh, uh, you know, check out his, his background background check good enough to, to realize that he had some connections and uh, commitments with Russia. But guess what? That's not Trump's fault. I mean, he don't have, at that time, he didn't have the FBI and all these agencies to go do background checks and everything else, uh, which would be required. And I'm sorry, you know, uh, Trump's not connected to that. And the fact that this guy still wants to say, oh, it's going to end up with Trump. Look, you ask for the best and worst of it. The best of, the best of it is the Democrats are going to have big-time egg on their face. And he's trying to lowball this stuff that Devin Nunes is, is uh, talking about and talked about today. I'm sorry. That's going to come out, and it's going to point right back to the Obama administration. And guess what? When these people reveal people's names, that's a felony right there. And he just he just went right past all that stuff. Well, he, he was talking. We, we we did we touched on the unmasking. Oh, look, I I, I want to be very clear on this. Uh, John um, knows what he's talking about. He is all, and I shouldn't be. I'm not trying to speak for John, especially if he's listening. John, if you want to call back in, you can address this yourself. Um, but he believes very strongly that there was nefarious stuff uh, going on with the Trump administration with the Trump. Uh, uh, when you're running for president, not when you are president. Campaign, sorry, the word, I just blanked on it, uh, with the Trump campaign. And I, I disagree, but let's be clear also that that's an interpretation of data points that we currently have. Nobody can say definitively that there was anything nefarious that Donald Trump or his uh, senior associates, e- even at this point, including Manafort, although Manafort may have some problems on his hands, no one can say that they did. I don't think that they did. I don't believe this went all the way up to the president. Uh, John clearly does, but he understands the processes that we're talking about today. He understands, uh, really, when when Representative Nunez is getting into all of this, uh, how that side of uh, intelligence collection works. Uh, so I wanted to bring him on to, to share that expertise. He's very open about the fact that he does not Look, he's very open to the fact he he doesn't like uh, he doesn't like or trust Trump. I that there are plenty of Republicans though out there uh, who are still never Trump, whether they're open about it or not. Um, and some of the, I I actually prefer the ones that are open about it at least tell or that feel that way or at least open about it. But anyway, yeah. I'm speaking more for John than I mean. I don't mean to speak for him at all. But I just try to give you some background on if somebody has real expertise and information that they can share on this show. Uh, I'm not going to. I don't just pick it based on, you know, this isn't a Trump cheerleader section, right? And I'm not saying you want that, Ken, but I don't come here night after night to tell you about how awesome Donald Trump is. I voted for Trump. I support Trump. I want his agenda to go through because I think it's best for the American people. I have more faith in Trump's goodwill and and and, he, and his uh, intentions for the country than a lot of other Republicans do, including Republicans who have 
or conservatives. I use those terms. I mean, I'm a Republican and a conservative. I don't walk away from the Republican term. Some people do. But can I try to, lack of a better way of putting it, I try to keep it real. And uh, night in and night out, I'll show up and tell everybody here that listens day in and day out uh, what I think about what's going on here. I do not believe that Donald Trump did anything illegal or colluded with the Russians in any way, shape or form. Uh, I do think that General Flynn showed some poor judgment in who he was accepting money from uh, in the immediate months, even before he was going to become national security advisor. And Mike Pence obviously agrees because he asked him to step down. I do think that Paul Manafort has some interesting questions to answer about what he was doing. Just because he got paid by a foreign country. I mean, Podesta and Podesta's peeps were getting paid all kinds of money by the Russians. And no one's saying they're going to go to jail or did anything illegal. Exactly. No, no. So, but so, Ken, I'm trying to give a full, you know, there are other places that one, and I would never, I'm not saying anyone should go to them. There are other places one can go. If you just want Trump is amazing, Trump is amazing, Trump is amazing. Anyone who even criticizes somebody who works for Trump is a jerk and a traitor. You know, I just, I can't do that. And I, Ken, I don't think you want that. So I'm just trying to say that I bring multiple perspectives right. here as long as it's based in, you know, Schindler is a smart guy. And he knows this world, meaning the world of intelligence. And you got so many people that go on TV. And I can tell you this is somebody else who, by the way, knows the intelligence world better than a lot of the people going on TV, including members of the House and such who talk about it. So, you know, but I try not to wave that around like I'm some sort of uh, savant. But it's you got two people here talking who really know the ins and outs of the intelligence community and also, you know, where we can go in a responsible fashion in the discussion and where we have to avoid discussion so but look schindler's very critical of trump and he doesn't hide it and he doesn't pretend so and and i I asked him for both sides of it and i think he gave more of a negative trump side but that's the way he feels if you're you know you listen to me i'll tell you that i think that somebody was playing politics they unmasked or somehow uh leaked information about about flynn's phone call this is all based on public reported news sources and also now talked about by people with classified access in the government openly, including Nunez and members of the of the Trump administration. So we should be able to discuss it, too. And that was dirty. It was political payback. And somebody should be held accountable for that on the Russia Trump collusion. Ken, I don't see it. But then again, we're not we're not totally done yet. So I can't definitively say nothing happened with Manafort or nothing happened with Roger Stone. Go ahead, go ahead. I know I've been talking a lot, but I wanted to clear all that up. Yeah, okay, and I got you. And look, I, I don't really want to impugn uh, Mr. Uh, Schumer, or what, what's his name, Schumer? Yeah, John Schindler is his name. He writes for The Observer. Schindler. Okay, well, I just think he was real quick to go from A to Z. He skipped B, C, D, E, F, J, F. You know, in regards to Trump, he, he leaked real quick. So, I mean, it just revealed kind of his bias. Oh, he, no, but he's up front. But he's up front. Understand this. He's not pretending to be a nonpartisan, non-ideological observer of national security events. He thinks that the Trump team, that people on the Trump team are dirty. He's open about that. I don't. Yeah. I don't think they're dirty. I, I got some questions about Manafort and Roger Stone. I don't know what that guy's deal is. I, you know. well, Doesn't yeah. he have a giant yeah. tattoo of Nixon on his back? Am I right about that? I think so. Am I crazy? Am I making that up? I got. Can someone check that for me? Sometimes things pop in my head that are wrong. But, Ken, look, man, I, I, I appreciate you uh, you know, holding us accountable here. Make sure that we uh, are fair to the issues, and that's what I try to do every night, and that's why I hope you keep listening, man. Uh, thanks for calling in from Mississippi. I appreciate it, brother. Shields high. Let's get uh, Walter in Florida on WNTM. What's up, Walter? Hey, Buck. Let me start by saying I enjoy your uh, 
show. I, I like Megan pretty well when she was in the seat. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of her people just went over the fence too many times for me to, to appreciate uh, the good parts of the whole. So I, I like your background. I like your service. Thanks for your service. Thank and, you, sir. I uh, just wanted to get that off. I'm glad you're in this time spot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, as I said, I have three things I'm concerned about. A, you know, uh, I'm concerned that so many of our Republican leaders were so quick to move to investigate things that were really nothing more than what is really uh, rumors. And those rumors seem to have been spread very much by the past administration. And I'm I don't I'm not an intelligence guy. I'm not a person that gets to look at signal intelligence. But it troubles me, B, that we don't have any information about the two million dollars that went to the Clintons, and then within months, twenty percent of our uranium. Uh, reserves were gone to the Russians, uh, an oligarch in Russia. You can, if you want, you can look for a, a tweet, Walter, where I said uh, sarcastically, it's a good thing Russia wasn't a security risk while Bill Clinton was getting paid $500,000 by the Russians for a speech while his wife was Secretary of State and deciding to hand over 20% of our uranium. So this newfound Russia is so scary thing the Democrats have is very disingenuous and very hypocritical. Right. And shit, for your for Schindler to somehow make shift a, uh, a authority. He's been a attack dog from the day that our president became president. And, and I'm somebody that came to Donald Trump late, but the more that I see of him, the more that I think he's, he's on target. And the last thing I was going to say was, you know, it, it is so telling that here Nunez comes forward with real, actual information of intelligence reports that he's seen unmasked with notes that are personal and professional on these people that have been unmasked. It's been distributed to 17 different uh, organizations within the intelligence community, and all that Jake Tapper asked about is, are you covered for the president? To me, that, sh that tells the story that we already knew, but each time these people speak about things that are, that are should be substantive and they, and they discount and they... Uh, mollified the reality that we may have a past president that broke the law. We know he did more than once, uh, and, you know, he's not been held accountable. I don't know that he needs to go to jail, but somebody in the in the Justice Department or in the intelligence community, and it, I, I don't want to say that Comey is, is uh, a partisan, but I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find out what he is. I used to think he's an honorable man, but... He's either telling lies or people are telling lies to him. It just seems so apparent that he doesn't have a clear picture either because he got before Congress and made statements that have been proven on the face false today by Nunes. And that's why he came out. I'm sure he said, you know, you, here we had the leading of the NSA, the leader of the FBI, and they both told us there was nothing. And now I found out there's something. What would you do if you were the man that just been... Walter, I just want to say that I've followed everything that I can you know, I, if I had if I had classified access, still I obviously couldn't even talk about these things, right? But I, I used to and have a familiarity with uh, how these systems work, what the laws are around them, and I can tell you, I have seen nothing so far that makes me question the loyalty of the president of the United States. Nothing. Now that's my that's my assessment. There are others who may, and certainly a lot of Democrats disagree, but there are other conservatives who may disagree. I have seen nothing 
Uh, and I think it's a very dangerous charge, very dangerous for this country and its future to start to suggest, as some have, that the president would sell out his country. Another way of saying that is engage in treason. For what? For a bag, a bag of uh, you know rubles under the table? I don't think so. Uh, thank you for calling in, Walter. Thank you, I, I, thank you for calling in, man. Shields high. Here in the Freedom Hut, my friends, we strive for accuracy and transparency. And so it is with that in mind that I have to tell you that, yes, indeed, Roger Stone does have a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back. There are photos available online. You Google them at your own risk, my friends. But uh, there is a there is a Richard Nixon tattoo on this guy's back. Wow. There is that. And we also are going to, I think, reach out to Mr. Stone to see if he would like to come on the show and explain what the heck is going on here with all this stuff. Uh, I would, I would love to get Manafort on, but I, I'm pretty sure Manafort is going to be... I, I'm pretty sure the people that are supposed to comment, for those who are supposed to comment for Manafort, are going to be saying no comment for the foreseeable future. That would be my guess. But we'll try. We'll try, because we're fair to people here in the hut. We just want the truth. And we want to have some fun while we find it, too. Keith in Arkansas on the iHeart app. What's up, Keith? Oh, it's Alaska. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Oh, it's Alaska. Uh, I, I mean, I, I totally, I, I, uh, I knew that. I just knew that. Sure, sure. Go ahead. All right. Well, I just wanted to say that uh, I've, I've listened to John Schindler quite a bit on your show, on, on the old Freedom Hut show. And, uh, I will have to say I have to agree with most of the callers that he was pretty uh, pretty partisan sounding today. Um, but I wanted to say that Trump saying that he was wiretapped, I think anybody with half a brain realizes that they probably haven't done wiretaps in 15 years. I think, you know, what, it, what he meant was they were listening to him and pretty much has proven out to be true. They were listening to him, whether they were specifically listening to him or listening to somebody else, they, they got him. They got him on tape. Um, you know, and the fact that they, the FBI has been investigating Trump since July and they still haven't come up with anything, it leads me to believe that, that you know, there was some kind of winch, witch hunt after Trump or, you know, maybe his team or, or who knows what was going on. But I think this thing's going to delve a lot deeper than we think. And I think, Trump has pretty much proven himself to be right with almost everything he said so far. Um, maybe not, you know, exact word for word, but you give it a little bit of time, and what he says usually ends up being true. So, well, I, you, let's just I, review I, for I, a I, second. Trump, Trump was repeating uh, the uh, Trump was repeating allegations that some had pulled, some had pointed out before him that were in the media, that were in the the New York Times and McClatchy and other news sources about a counterintelligence investigation. And now today you've got the chairman of the, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, Hipsy, out there saying that, you know, this is this is real, that they're that they're the, I mean, I don't know what else to say. The guy is telling us that he thinks that there was and I'm trying to use the, find the specific verbiage he used. Right. We could just uh, play the, the clip, actually uh, here. Do it. Do, uh, do me a favor. Play. Uh, Play 52 one more time. I have seen, I have seen intelligence reports that uh, clearly show uh, that uh, the president-elect and his team uh, 
were, I guess, at, at least monitored and disseminated out in intelligence and what appears to be raw, or, or I shouldn't say raw, but uh, intelligence reporting channels. He's saying that there was intel collection on the president and his team. I don't know. I mean, th- that's a pretty big deal. This is he has access. I don't. He's an elected official. I am not. I have to go on what he's telling me, at least based on the facts of what he's telling me. And he's saying that there was surveillance. Yeah, Buck. I mean, it's exactly right. There was surveillance. I think Trump has proven himself to be to be exactly right in what he said. You know, he might, he might have not used the right words when he came out and said it. You know, but uh, you know, Trump's kind of an old school guy. You know, and so when you when you when you think about somebody being surveilled or being listened to, you you know, when you're an old school guy, you go, "Why is wiretapping me?" You know what I mean? Yeah, wiretapping. He, I mean, that. that yeah, wiretapping as a term. I mean, it's yeah. like saying electronic surveillance, wiretapping. That's not. I, there's no leap of faith required there at all in terms of the, the one word meaning with the other. I mean, that's a lot of people. I mean, look, Trump's Trump's not a career intelligence officer. He, you know, he doesn't know the specific. He's not a law enforcement guy either, obviously. Uh, but Keith in Alaska, not to be confused with Arkansas, very different climate. Both, both with lovely people, of course. Um, but anyway, Keith, man, Shields High, great to have you. Uh, original squad here on the Buck Saxon Show. Thank you for calling in. Uh, phones are open. If you're on hold, please stay with me. We'll, we will get to you if you can hold through. I know we got a lot of calls coming in. A lot of people want to weigh in on this stuff. Uh, 888-844, pardon me, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We're going to talk a bit about uh, the House GOP health care bill, but if you want to talk about anything else we've hit in the show, we'll consider it all Fair game, my friends. I got that and a lot more coming up. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Team, we're about to talk about health care, but first, Anne in Virginia on WKCI. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, Anne. Mr. Sexton, you are the most intelligent person on the radio. Well, thank you. That's very kind. No question. I appreciate that. And because of your intelligence, would you please appear on The View and straighten those women out? Uh, If they would have me, sure. (laughs) Why not? Send them an email. Tell tell Whoopi that I'm happy to show up anytime. Oh, my gosh. Whoopi today said that uh, Trump has to apologize to Obama because there was no indication of any wiretapping. Yeah, well, Trump's not going to apologize, so we don't have to worry about that. That's one thing, and we do not have to worry about, uh, no, no matter what the end result of all these investigations may be. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. But, Anne in Virginia, thank you very much for your kind words. Shields high. Thank you. Uh, we got Dan Holler on the line as our guest. He is Heritage Action's vice president. He's going to talk to us a bit about all things health care. Dan, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right, uh, we're hearing a lot of things, Dan, about this GOP health care bill. You've got Paul Ryan out there saying that we are, or that they are not losing votes, they're gaining them. 
There is a claim that there's 24 votes against it. We're getting a lot of Freedom Caucus members to support this bill. We've been adding Freedom Caucus votes to this bill all week. Um, here's what's going on, Dana. Uh, we are in the fourth quarter of, of the House passing this bill, which is the fourth committee. Now that we're getting to the fourth committee of a four-committee process, that's when a lot of uh, negotiations really intensify near the end of the process. And that's what this is. This is called legislating. Uh, we're, we're talking to our members and working toward the goal line here. We're adding votes by the day. We're, we're not losing votes. We're adding votes. Okay, Dan, they're saying that this is all in. We got Trump making fo- personal phone calls to members of the House to get them in line here for this. Meanwhile, Heritage Action, you're, you guys are telling lawmakers that they should oppose this bill. Why? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's a whole lot going on there. I mean, the, the main problem with this bill, uh, I mean, it's a bill that supposedly repeals Obamacare, but, but it's what it doesn't repeal that's the problem. Obamacare did a lot of things, but one of the things, the main things that it did was basically turn the health insurance industry into a publicly regulated utility. That was all sort of the mandates and regulations on the insurance industry that was Title I of Obamacare. This bill, the bill that Speaker Ryan was talking about in that clip, leaves most of those regulations intact. So if the next president comes along and happens to be Elizabeth Warren, her Secretary of Health and Human Services can go right back and turn the dial way up and start regulating and mandating all sorts of things through these regulations that would be left in place. But you we got think it's a bad idea. Some difficult political realities ahead if, in fact, they do start from scratch or pull back from this push to get the bill passed. You've got White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer saying no plan B. Six- is there a plan B? Like, no, you- there is no plan. I mean, this is there's plan A and plan A. We're going to get this done. Plan A and Plan A. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, they're trying to really push people into this, saying that well, they'll negotiate, the Senate will change it, and in the end, it's going to be much prettier than it is now. I'm not sure about that. Sounds like you're not sure about that either. No, I certainly wouldn't be content with a promise that the United States Senate is going to make things better. But it does sound like that conservative members of the House are working directly with the president to, to make the House bill better. And if that is what is actually happening, that's a very good thing. I mean, Speaker Ryan has been sort of disregarding these House conservatives and saying, this is a binary choice, you take it or leave it. And President Trump all along has been saying, hey, I want to get the best deal possible, I want to get a good bill. And it sounds like the president's actually beginning to deliver on that and work in some changes to the House bill. And you've, of course, got Nancy Pelosi out there saying that, well, chanting that we need to protect (laughs) our care. Let's just play this for everybody. 69, uh, clip 69, please. Protect our care. 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 I mean... Uh, it doesn't last very long. Uh, protect their care, they say. They don't want anything to change here. The best they can do is chant like they're at some kind of student rally somewhere. Um, but the Democrats, I assume, are looking at this and will make a lot of headway, a lot of political headway against the Republicans if they stumble here. But you, you feel like the, even with those stakes, the bill is bad enough that they need to, what, start from scratch, start with something else entirely? Where should they go? I mean, they, they need to get at the insurance regulation mandates, and, and that's what we've been saying all along. And, and the problem is, if they don't do that, Republicans are going to be running for re-election in 2018 saying, hey, we repealed Obamacare. And voters are going to be looking at their premiums going, no, you didn't. And Donald Trump's going to be running for re-election in 2020 saying, we repealed Obamacare and gave you something great. And voters are going to be saying, no, you didn't. Our health care still sucks. So they got to get this right, or else there's going to be real political consequences, not the fake ones that Democrats dredge up the real political consequences from independent voters 
who put Donald Trump in the White House. What does Heritage Action want? Is there a bill out there? Is there a version of a bill that you guys are like, this, this is the way to get it done? There have been a lot of good bills out there that, that really gone at the, the regulations that we're talking about. Secretary Price, his bill when he was in Congress, actually got at the regulations in Obamacare. That's exactly what they need to do. So there's a blueprint to do it. It just is a matter of the political will to get it done. Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think this passes? I hate to force people to prognosticate live on the air, but I guess I'm doing that. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, look, I mean, if, if they start to make some of the changes that we're talking about and the House Freedom Caucus is talking about, I think that they get it passed. If Speaker Ryan insists on jamming the bill through that he, he's presenting right now, uh, I don't think that bill does pass. So if they do the right thing, get better policy in there, win conservatives over on policy, they can get this passed and keep the process moving. Dan Holler is Heritage Action's vice president. Uh, Dan, anywhere you want to direct people to go for more? Sure, they can go to heritageaction.com. All right, fantastic. Dan, thanks for joining. Thanks. Team, we're going to hit a break, and we'll be right back. Everybody, I'm very pleased to bring Ayan Hersi Ali onto the show right now. She is a human rights activist, a best-selling author, uh, you may well know her book, Infidel. She's also a former Dutch politician. She's the founder of the AHA Foundation, and she has a new study out we're going to talk to her about uh, with the Hoover Foundation. Ion, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you very much for having me back. Uh, so your report comes out today, The Challenge of Dawa Political Islam as Ideology and Movement and How to Counter It in the Aftermath of Yet Another uh, Jihadist Attack on uh, Western Capital, Western Civilization. A very timely discussion to have. Uh, tell us a bit about this report and, and how it, it obviously should have ramifications for how we approach counterterrorism right after yet another attack. Well, I am saying we have to, of course, continue doing uh, what we can to stop the terrorists um, and destroy ISIS. And, you know, we are engaged in all sorts of military uh, programs, and that should continue as long as these programs are effective. But the main theme, the main point of this report is that we also need to start combating the ideology that leads to the violence. Um, Dawa is the precursor to jihad. Most Americans are familiar with the term jihad, but they are not familiar with the term Dawa. And Dawa is, um, it, it, it's all the activism, the network, the infrastructure that is used to, um, you know, abusively change the minds of young people and indoctrinate them to adopt this horrible ideology, and then to act on it and commit jihadi acts. Now, what are the methods and what are some of the narratives that can be used to counter Dawa? Because clearly uh, ISIS, with the digital technologies afforded in the current era, has been able to reach people all over the world. They have been able to bring in tens of thousands of recruits to their banner specifically to fight in Syria and in Iraq, as well as other uh, affiliate organizations of ISIS around the world. And we see what today we don't know if there was any official connection or if this was just an individual who was inspired by the ideology. But what do some of those counter narratives sound like? Well, it is to target the same people, the constituencies that the Islamists target uh, we have networks in the West, in the United States of America, in the UK, rest of Europe. We have networks of mosques, Islamic centers, Muslim schools, 
and other institutions that are used to bring in individuals who identify as Muslim or to convert non-Muslims into Islam and then indoctrinate them with this ideology, we need to dismantle that infrastructure of indoctrination. And what do you say when, when people begin to talk about this? Um, and obviously you have uh, much greater authenticity on the subject than a vast majority of those who are willing to tackle this because you uh, were raised a Muslim. And uh, I would recommend everybody who's listening to read your book. I, I read it cover to cover, Infidel. Uh, but whenever one tries to, and I've dealt with this over at CNN, unfortunately, in the past, to address this in a constructive fashion and to separate out the radicals, the jihadis from the broader Muslim population, the knee-jerk reaction you get, especially from American leftists and progressives uh, here and in Europe, is that's racist, it's Islamophobic, and they try to shut down discussion. How do you counter that response? Well, I think some of the people on the far left, there is no point in trying to change their minds. They have this uh, romantic connection with and fascination with the Islamists. Some scholars call this the Red-Green Alliance, and uh, they hate America, they hate capitalism, they hate freedom. So there's no, it's impossible to change their minds, and I think it's a waste of time. But the general American public, you know, the man and the woman on the street, people with common sense, they understand this. They understand that this is an ideology, that these people are driven by a conviction and it's what they believe in. And I think that's where we, people like you and I should not stop talking to ordinary Americans, ordinary Brits, ordinary French people about what this is. And I think uh, with the election of Donald Trump, he promised that he was going to focus also on the assimilation of non-Muslims. He was going to focus on the ideological component. And I think we need to hold his administration accountable on those issues. How do you define the problem, Ion, because clear, I, I said earlier on, on the show today that there is only one faith tradition that creates jihadis and that spreads Islamism, but there are a great many people within that faith tradition that do neither of those things, and yet whenever we try to talk about this, oftentimes uh, Muslims, including friends of mine who are believing Muslims, become uh, very agitated. They think that they're being unfairly treated or unfairly singled out here. And it seems like almost as though we're dealing with an, an insurgency where they're hiding behind a broader population of innocents. Uh, we need those that broader population to be working with us. But it seems difficult to talk about it without uh, upsetting and offending the broader Muslim community. How do you go about that? Um well, first of all, I have to tell you, I recognize that it is an insurgency. Um, the political Islamists, they have an agenda that's subversive. They want to change our way of life and make us all Sharia compliant. And they are hiding behind large swathes of innocent Muslims. Happily, there is a group that I call the Muslim reformers or modifiers and that are now gaining some prominence. And we have to ally ourselves with them. And when our government... Take, you know, does outreach, our government should be working with these reformers. These are not people who deny that there is a problem. They acknowledge that there is a problem. They acknowledge that Islam needs to be reformed, and they're working to get it, but they've been ignored by former administrations, and I hope that with this administration, at least they get a platform. Absent those reformists and the efforts that they are undertaking to try and uh, bring about new interpretations of the Islamic faith, in your opinion, Ayan, as a former uh, a former Muslim, and I know that this has brought you a tremendous amount of 
of uh, grief and difficulty and, and personal threats over the course of your life. Because once you leave, of course, there are many hardliners who believe that apostasy is punishable by physical violence. Uh, so you understand this, you live this. Um, but I, I would want to ask you, the uh, jihadi who is flocking to the banner of ISIS in Raqqa in Syria, or a, a Muslim living in the West, any country, who is perfectly... Uh, law-abiding, pleasant, kind, trustworthy, a neighbor that anybody would want to live next to, who is, uh, who is living a more traditional version of Islam? Well, I would say a Muslim who's law-abiding and uh, causes no one harm has a protected right to practice his or her religion. It, those are not the people that we have a problem with. No, of course, of course, I know. But I, but I mean, who who is being a traditionalist? The, the question I'm trying to get to is the, the person who drinks and goes on TV and uh, is fine with pluralism and lives in the West and just happens to be Muslim or raised Muslim and maybe goes to mosques sometimes, not others, or the person who is taking up violence in the name of jihad? Who is more traditionalist? And, and if you don't have an answer, if it's an imperfect question, I understand, but I just wanted to pose it to you. Well, it's not so much tradition and not tradition. It's that, you know, the one you describe as being observant, but it is how much of Islam do you observe? If a Muslim observes only the call to pray and fast and lead an orthodox life, that's fine. But if a Muslim then says, I'm also going to observe the obligation to jihad and to you know, as a husband, beat my wife because it's my right and commit other crimes in the name of my religion to promote the political ideology that seeks to subvert our way of life. These are the people we are talking about. And I don't know if you want to call those traditionalists or not. I call them Medina Muslims. They call themselves Islamists. And I think it's fair to call them Islamists because that's how they refer to themselves. If you go to the Arab world, there's a whole movement that Arabs and people in the Middle East are very familiar with, and they call themselves Islamists, but it is us in the West who are very um, inhibited when it comes to naming the enemy. Yeah, and it seems like a, a fair discussion to get into about, well, what, what is orthodoxy within a faith that seems to have so many different branches, and yet there are so, or so many different interpretations, and yet there are so many uh, within that, not a small percentage, but a large number of people of the overall number uh, of Muslims who do radicalize either as Islamists or jihadists, right, as people who either believe in political Islam or believe in taking up violence in the name of that of that political Islam. I used to find it interesting to hear Hitchens pose the question, Christopher Hitchens, who I believe you knew, uh, I might be wrong on that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you knew Christopher. Yeah. Um, you know, may he rest in peace. He would ask, which, uh, which of these different groups, and he would pose it out there, is more Muslim or more Islamic? And I think that's an interesting question in the modern context, because, as you said, there have to be reformers, and those reformers have to be willing to address this and address the doctrine, because there are there are clearly some problems here. Um, in terms of places to look, and I know you have this uh, piece out today, this research from Hoover, The Challenge of Dawah, Political Islam as Ideology and Movement and How to Counter It. And we only have about a minute left, Ion, but I wanted to ask, what are the bright spots? We have a terrorist attack today. People are obviously upset and concerned, as they should be. What are the bright spots that we'll be able to tackle this? we got about a minute. For me, the brightest spot is the emergence of the reformers or the modifying Muslims. They're calling out the Islamists. They are working with law enforcement. They are engaging the general Muslim public, and appealing to their conscience to reject radical Islam. That's the brightest spot that we have today. 
Ayan Hirsi Ali is a human rights activist, author of the book Infidel, which I highly recommend to all of you, and also out today uh, at hoover.org, The Challenge of Dawah, Political Islamist Ideology and Movement and How to Counter It. Ayan, anything else you want to let everyone know about? I just want to, you know, pass my condolences and sympathy to those who survived the attack and the family of those people who, who died in the attack in London. That was horrible. It could have been prevented, and we really should prevent more from happening. All right. Ayan, thank you very much for making the time tonight. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Team, we're going to hit hour three in a few minutes. Stay with me uh, through the break. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Team, here's a piece that I think will get your attention. How China is preparing for cyber war. The author is Adam Siegel. He's the director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he joins us now. Adam, thank you very much for calling in. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so the, the piece is, is timely and uh, full of information that I wish more Americans knew. I wish was uh, more widely known so that when we have policy discussions about this and when people are voting for those who are going to be making and enacting policy, they understand the full scope and scale of the threat of Chinese hacking, Chinese cyber espionage, Chinese cyber war. If you would, please just walk us through how this is broken down in your piece. You talk about their government cyber operations, private sector within China. Uh, how, what, what, is the, what is the order of battle, if you will, of Chinese cyber warfare operations? Well, cyberspace is important to the Chinese for, for three purposes, for economic growth, for military conflict, and for political influence. Uh, and so they hack... Uh, in pursuit of those three goals. They steal intellectual property uh, and commercial secrets to help Chinese companies. They are thinking about if there is a military conflict in the South China Seas or over the Taiwan Straits, how they would use a military attack uh, to diminish U.S. uh, military strength. Uh, And they want to be able to control the narrative about uh, China's rise. So they harass uh, human rights activists, Tibetan activists, uh, and other people who they think uh, can tell a different story than, than China wants to know. You write in your piece that in 2013, the Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property, uh, which was chaired by former DNI Admiral Dennis Blair, estimated the theft of intellectual property totaled $300 billion annually, with 50 to 80 percent of that being from China. The numbers here, when people start to look at them, are astonishing, and they are just estimates. They are. You know, former director of the NSA, uh, General Keith Alexander, used to call it the the largest transfer of wealth in human history. Um, We know that the Chinese are not happy being the factory to the world, right? They want to move up the value chain. They want to have their own apples. They don't want to be the ones who are always putting Apple phones together. And they're spending a lot of money on science and technology and increasing the number of university students, but that innovation isn't coming fast enough, and a a lot faster way is to steal it from uh, U.S. companies. What are some of the uh, alleged or reported biggest intrusions in the military space that we've seen so far? I know you cite some of them in this piece, but I think when people hear what the Chinese have, again, 
allegedly been poking around and trying to steal, uh, they it, it automatically forces one to think, okay, this is a very serious problem. So what are some of the programs that are um, allegedly under, the, or allegedly in the past have been the target of Chinese cyber espionage? Well, it, it's actually, it's probably easier to think of any uh, military project that hasn't been hacked. I mean, pretty much any uh, important U.S. strategic platform has been hacked. The uh, F-22 and F-35, the next generation of stealth aircraft, uh, the next generation of destroyer, um, uh, missile defense uh, across the board. Probably one of the most um, uh, widespread uh, hacks that's going to have the largest impact is on the OPM, on the Office of Personnel Management, uh, which has you know 22 million uh, records and it includes all the personal information of uh, federal uh, um, employees. So anybody who works for the U.S. government in the military or anywhere else uh, basically told the U.S. government all their secrets, uh, if they have a drinking problem, if they had an affair. Um, and so this allows the Chinese just a massive uh, intelligence and counterintelligence capability from stealing all this data. So so I, I had a security clearance. Is is it possible that the Chinese might know some stuff about me? Oh, I, I, it's it's probably definite. I mean, if they <laughs> Great. Still not an F, if you filled out an SF-86, then oh, they, yeah. they had that, that file. Oh, man, good stuff. Whatever, China. I got nothing to hide. Bring it, China. Uh, so let's get back. Sorry about that. Let's get back into uh, into the, the the realities here and the very scary realities of what the Chinese are trying to do. Uh, so you said this is, and this has been noted in the past, the greatest transfer of wealth in history, um, and it's largely done in secret and silently. That the Chinese um, are thought of these days much more as an economic trading partner with this, and whenever there's uh, harsh rhetoric from politicians in this country, generally, or, or specifically in this case, including Donald Trump, it has to do with trade and currency manipulation. But what what are the things that we can really do now that we know that China is engaged in this continuous campaign of massive intellectual theft and uh, industrial, commercial, and military espionage without having to even put a single person on U.S. soil, right? This can all be done electronically, what are the things that we can? What are the things that we can do, or, or is this just a continuous vulnerability, and we're trying to, you know, plug up the different leaks in the dam? Well, yes, yeah, so definitely getting better at defense is, is the, probably the most important thing. But we do we we do have a positive trend, and and that is is that in the last year and a half of the Obama administration, the White House uh, slowly uh, ratcheted up pressure, and by the end was threatening to sanction high-level Chinese officials and punish probably people that were tied to state-owned enterprises. This all happened right before President Xi Jinping was uh, expected to come to the White House and have his first state summit. And then um, right before Xi was to arrive, the Chinese sent uh, a very high-level communist official who negotiated a deal that said, okay, neither side will knowingly support or tolerate the theft of commercial secrets to help our companies. That was about a year ago. That was September 2000, uh, almost two years ago now, September 2015. And so far, that agreement seems to have hold, held. Um, we've seen a decline in the theft of intellectual property. It's not going to stop them from stealing our military secrets, but so far, at least, the threat of sanctions um, has kept them, uh, for the most part, out of, out of U.S. companies. Now, we've been talking mostly about cyber espionage or the transfer of, of information uh, that occurs via electronic means and, and these uh, intrusions. 
But when one speaks about cyber warfare, uh, that then takes us into a, a different place. And how do you think uh, that is going to play out in, in the years to come? And, and what are the things that we should be thinking about as as vulnerabilities, not just here in the U.S., but for any of our allies? Uh, I, I assume there must be programs that are being researched by our enemies that would allow them to do serious damage to our electronic and uh, digital infrastructure. Well, you, you look at the Chinese writings, and they are very clear that in any conflict, um, in the first stages, they're going to want to seize what they call information dominance, right? So they want to blind U.S. satellites. They want to take U.S. computer networks down. Uh, and so they think that's very important to do in the first stages uh, of the conflict. Uh, the U.S. thinks the same thing. Right? We, we, for a while, we were talking about what was called the air-sea battle concept, but basically we also think that you know, if you're going to fight, you want to blind the other side very quickly. This, this creates a real situation of strategic instability. If both sides think that you have to move very, very quickly uh, or you're going to get blinded, then you uh, have a tendency to react uh, perhaps uh, more quickly than you, you would want. Um, and so also if you see the attacker in your network, uh, you're going to think, oh, he's there to blind me, and so you may react very, very quickly. So you can imagine a lot of scenarios where, you know, the U.S. and China have a standoff because of some incident in the South China Sea, and you know, the, Chinese, the U.S. sees Chinese hackers in its network, and we think, oh, we're not sure why we're there, and we, and we move much more quickly than we want. So it's a pretty frightening situation where both sides could uh, escalate in ways that we, we might not want. I'm just saying it's uh, interesting in this piece that you wrote, and I would recommend it to, uh, to everybody here, um, it's how China is preparing for cyber war. It's on the CS Monitor, Christian Science Monitor, csmonitor.com. Uh, you also write the following. China-based actors allegedly hacked the computers of the 2008 Barack Obama and John McCain presidential campaigns, State Department, and White House. And then you go into some others as well that have allegedly been hacked, other important uh, allies of ours that have had their government uh, computer databases hacked into. I think it's interesting in the current environment where there's so much focus on Russian cyber activity, uh, China's cyber activity has to be right up there in terms of the intrusive nature, the damage done, the capabilities. Uh, I I would assume that we should also be having a conversation about that, including at the level of political machinations, um, given what's happened with Russia. What do you think? Well, you know, quite honestly, a year ago, we, we weren't, or almost a year and a half ago, we weren't talking about Russia. We were talking about China all the time. Um, so it was always about Chinese theft. Um, so it is, a, it is a change now that we've been talking about Russian hackers. Russian hackers traditionally were much more quiet than, than, uh, than, US, than Chinese hackers. Chinese hackers had a reputation. Um, I think it was uh, FBI Director Comey once basically called them kind of you know, the, the drunk thief who knocks over the vase on the way out of the house carrying the TV. They didn't really seem to care that they were being so loud because they had so many and they were so prolific. The Russians, on the other hand, seemed to be much quieter and much more stealth. Now, this is a big dramatic change, and I think you know, the Chinese government is certainly very happy that we're paying a lot more attention to Russia these days than we are to them. Are there any other uh, actors, either foreign governments or just groups that are out there that one should be keeping an eye on in terms of being a strategic level uh, cyber espionage and even cyber warfare threat? Uh, so, I mean, at the, at the nation state level, you know, we've seen uh, Iranian attacks uh, on U.S. banks. Um, Iranians seem to be in a, in a dam in Rye, New York. 
Um, and the North Koreans, of course, you know, with the attack on Sony, um, and, you know, there's uh, emerging evidence that they were involved um, in the SWIFT attack on the, on the banks uh, in transferring money um, outside of the, the U.S. Fed. So those are two probably the most um, capable nation-state actors. For the most part, um, non-state actors, so anonymous and others, they're mostly about annoyance. Uh, disrupting disrupting websites, um, knocking things down, but not having a real strategic effect. Adam Siegel's director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Check out his latest, How China is Preparing for Cyber War, on csmonitor.com. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your expertise. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Phone lines are open, team. 844-900-2825 covered a lot of ground today. The Buck Sexton Show is like around the world in a couple of hours. It's how we roll. We'll be right back. Are they going to pass this GOP healthcare bill? I'm, I'm starting to think this is going to run into trouble. I, I've even read some very interesting analysis today of how this, how this is all meant to, uh, well, more or less founder on the rocks of parliamentary procedure, right? That that's, um, you know, that that's what they're thinking. Uh, that's what I think is possible here. Um, that they push this through in the Senate, and then they, the Senate says, oh, but we can't because of reconciliation. I'm just noticing that there is such a lack after eight years of Obama's progressive agenda, which even when he lost control of first the Senate and then the House, was still the dominant political theme in this country. After eight years of that, we've had Republicans who have told us that they were the equivalent of, you know, the, you know, the kid, I mean, I, I coached soccer at one point, which I know soccer, some of you think that's, it's like, I must've done this in a foreign country, whatever. Maybe I was eating croissants and, and drinking lattes while I coached soccer. I'm not, and no shame in that game. Uh, but uh, having coached, you know, you always love the kid that was on the sidelines that just even when he wasn't in the game, you could tell. I could always look at my players and I knew who wanted who really wanted to get in the game and who was like, ah, I'm kind of happy. I'm, I'm happy sitting this one out. This is a tough game. This is this is rough. And I could tell who, who wants to really get in the game. And any of you who have coached or have spent enough time watching your kids play sports or have played yourself know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there, there's the kid who, if you call on him, it's like he's not even going to have his uniform or his helmet or anything ready. And then there's a kid who's like basically already in the game, even though he's supposed to be sitting on the bench. And Republicans have been pretending to be the latter, right? Republicans in Congress have been acting like they're the kid on the sideline that is just, you know, you're going to have to tell him to sit down or else they're going to call a penalty because he's on the field or on the ice or whatever, and it's not his turn. And now here we are and we we get to, we the American people are the coach and we're saying all right get your stuff get out there and the Republican congressmen I think some of them at least at a, at a minimum some of them maybe a lot of them are like well, I don't know I think the team's doing pretty well you know maybe we should just like let let the let this like play out you know he's doing a great job out there you know the defense is looking a little little rough they're playing rough I don't want to and I'm looking at them like you got to be kidding me right I mean, Paul Ryan, say what you will about, well, I've said a lot about Paul Ryan. 
don't know the guy. And I, I've said before, and I just like to point this out whenever I can say something nice about somebody I do. People I do know who have interacted with him on a personal level say he's a really nice guy. So take that for what it's worth. Certainly not true of all politicians. Definitely not true of all media personalities and radio hosts. I can tell you that. Uh, but they are, they've been promising us that they were just ready to go. And here we are, Paul Ryan and some of the others, they have their opportunity. We're telling, we're, we're trying to put them in the game and they either don't want to get in or they're hiding off on the, hiding off by the, by the sidelines, not, you know, hoping not to be recognized or not to get involved. And, and that's really disconcerting at this point. Um, I, I can tell they're not, they don't want this fight. They don't want responsibility. I do think a lot of it boils down to the unwillingness to come clean with the American people about how you can have a free market healthcare system or you can have a government that is there to take care of all of us, you know, a government that treats us all like we're kids. It's, you know, in loco parentis, a government that's there in place of parents to make sure that there's someone to, you know, to kiss your knee when it's bruised and tell you everything's okay. And, you know, all that magic stuff moms do when you're a kid and, you know, you fall off your bicycle and everything. We, we kind of want government to do that. Whenever we fall off our bicycle, we want the government to be there to make things better. That comes with a cost. The government is not your mom. <laughs> that should be a bumper sticker. The government is not your mom. That is true. Uh, and moms know what I'm talking about with how they can, they you know, they make the, the kids crying. Oh, my gosh, what happened to me? I fell off my bike. Mom comes over. You know you're going to be okay. That's moms, not the government. Government can't do that for you. And Republicans are worried about speaking the truth on this one, I think. You got Mike Lee, though. Um, he's He's saying that they just don't have the votes. Do you think people should get in line on this bill or not? No, absolutely not. I don't think this bill was what we promised. What we promised, what we've been promising for seven years is that if Republicans were given the chance to govern, we would repeal Obamacare, root and branch. That's not what this bill does. President Trump's message has been hijacked. His agenda of repealing Obamacare has been hijacked by people who don't share his values, by people who don't share his desire to repeal Obamacare. Is it going to pass in its current version on Thursday? What's your sense on the Hill? No, no. no. I, 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 I am strongly, strongly persuaded that it's not going to pass. I think they should cancel the vote because they don't have the votes. I've been trying to tell them that for many days. And so far, that hasn't been unhe- that hasn't been heated. Uh, Mike Lee, you know, Mike Lee, when I was uh, just doing a Saturday radio show, uh, was kind enough to join me once in in person, and so I always I always appreciate that. That Senator Lee, you know, there are plenty of people when you get nationally syndicated, or all of a sudden you have an audience that they all want to reach that'll join you. Uh, Senator Lee just recognized me as a. Uh, a like-minded conservative and was willing to do my show before anybody knew that doing my show was something they should do. So I like, I like Senator Lee. Uh, and I, I want to know what the response is to what he just said there. Am I, am I missing something? I, I have brought on, and you know this because I try to give you, look, I, I bring conservatives on. If there are smart liberals out there who want to come on to different issues and down the line team, that may ha- I may have people on who are not just reformed liberals who know that liberalism is, the destruction of Western civilization. But uh, I, I want to bring on others as well to talk about certain issues. And I bring on conservatives who are, I've had never Trumpers on the show, obviously. Um, it's not my feeling and I disagree with them, but I want to hear their different perspectives on issues, especially when they have expertise. But I've had the best people that I know of and 
I definitely know who the best people are on national security in terms of knowledge, and I I like to think that I know who the best people are with health care because I've spent a lot of time reading about, learning about health care, especially in recent years. And none of them are in favor of this bill. I don't know what else to say. Not, none of them are on board for this. I'm waiting to be persuaded by somebody and saying, get in line, uh, don't let the Democrats win. Yeah, that works during the general election when a Republican's up against a Democrat. Does not work with me now. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Team, I wanted to give you a little bit of the backstory, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, uh, of... Uh, one of our earlier guests, Ayan Hersi Ali, uh, we were very pleased she joined us. If you missed the interview or if you want to hear it again or if you want to share it with anybody, uh, because I think it would be worth, uh, quite honestly, anybody listening to, uh, her perspective is incredibly valuable and her story is uh, very compelling. And honestly, as you read it, it's very emotional and intense. Uh, she, Her autobiography not technically called that, I suppose, but it is an autobiographical work. Infidel is something that uh, you should all, if you have the time and the inclination, uh, pick up a copy and read it. There are very few authors that I have ever either personally asked for them to sign my book or uh, have asked a friend to get a signed copy of a book. And uh, Miss Ali, I wouldn't say this to her, on air, just because, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself, but uh, she's one of them. And, and when I mean very few, I mean, I could count them on one hand. Uh, Infidel is, is an excellent uh, is an excellent book. And by, if you missed the interview, please uh, download the podcast of today's show. You can go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. You can click subscribe. Please do, even if you listen daily live, which I certainly hope you do as you hear this. Um, downloading the podcast is a great way to, one, just give us a sense of how quickly... Uh, Team Buck, as I affectionately refer to all of you listening, is growing, uh, and that's very important for us. It's important for our affiliates as well. Uh, And also, it's a way for you to share the show, and I think we have some very important conversations here in what I also affectionately term the Freedom Hut, which, oh, let me, before I go into Miss Hersey Ali, uh, the Freedom Hut is just a, it's a joke from my old uh, CIA days when... They asked, we, we decided we were going to come up with a name. This is just at Langley. This is nothing you know, sensitive or anything like that. But we were going to come up with just a name for our office, the Iraq office. I mean, literally the physical office, uh, because it was, it was, there were, you know, it was, there were problems with the ceiling and, you know, there were little bugs and it was quite an interesting place. Uh, I don't mean bugs like, you know, oh, we've bugged the wall. I mean, like actual little creepy crawlies. So, you know, stuff like that. Good times working for the federal government. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about leaks like people speaking to the press either. I mean, like, oh, it's dripping on my face while I'm on my computer. We had some interesting stuff going on in that office, and we were going to come up with, as a morale thing, they said, well, we should come up with a name for the office. And I mean, it, you know, it wasn't CP3O, isn't or isn't that the name of the uh, the guy from Star Wars? Right? I'm saying it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that obviously wasn't the name. I'm just saying, you know, it ended up being something really bureaucratic and boring. 
But my suggestion, which some of my colleagues thought would be a lot of fun, was I was like, we should just call this the Freedom Hut. It was a joke. Uh, and it, and we used to, and uh, with some of them, we'd kind of, we, it stuck a little bit. I mean, it was never officially called that. That's not an official term at all, but as a joke, I was like, we should call this the freedom hut because we're spreading freedom. Uh, and that was not the name, but that's, and then when I started the radio show, we, uh, I just decided that was perfect, right? I couldn't have, I couldn't actually have a freedom hut at the CIA, but I can have a freedom hut, uh, on radio and with team box. So that's, that's where the name uh, comes from it was just a it was an, an an inside joke among some close friends and fellow patriots uh, that i worked with at the agency so uh which i'm sure you know there's a very small group of people that even even know that story but i thought i would i would share it with you one day i'll have to tell you the story of the uh, of the free, of the freedometer or the freedom meter whole separate thing we might have to bring that back for this show but back to miss ion hersey ali and, and her story um, she, uh, was a, she's a Somali born, uh, later on Dutch, uh, um, Dutch politician. And I can't get into the entirety of her story just because it would take uh, quite a long time to, to do it justice. But she talks about what it's like to grow up female and, uh, Muslim in Somalia, Somalia, which is one of the most, uh, poor and, bleak places on planet earth based on well a lot of what i've read about it as well as i have a friend who uh, actually worked for the united nations told me once that he named all the worst countries that he had ever been to in the world and it was when i mean worst i mean the poorest the racked by violence and and disease and and he said that of the places that he had been somalia was just in a class by itself uh, there was there was nothing that compared to and he was he was like I've been to you know think of a country that you're like that's not a place I want to visit and he said Somalia was just in a class by itself um, and you get a sense of that I believe from watching uh, Black Hawk Down which uh, excellent movie of course based on the Mark Bowden book and uh, something that I think we watch it now and in retrospect given all of what's happened in the uh, war on terror and the continued uh, difficulties we've had with uh, jihadists around the world, and you you look at Black Hawk Down and what that was symbolizing, and uh, the well, there's just there's a there's a lot we we could talk about Black Hawk Down for a while. But uh, I'm not, by the way, another book. Some people ask me to I will try to do this, and uh, the place I do it is on Facebook.com/slash Buck Sexton. That's where I can try to put my suggestions for these things. Uh, books that I have mentioned on the show this week. Obviously, Infidel, Ayan Hersi Ali's book. And by the way, these are not, I'm not endorsing these. I don't, I don't get a commission or anything. I'm just telling you books that I think, and these are books that I have on, well, uh, Infidel is certainly a book I have on my shelf uh, currently, and I do have uh, an inscribed copy from uh, from Ayan. Uh, you have, uh, we, or rather, I, I mentioned The God That Failed. I've gone to that a few times this week. A, a compilation of six former communists writing about their experiences with the Communist Party, either as members or as fellow travelers, ideological uh, compatriots of the Communist Party, without necessarily being. It's the the fact. I believe it's out of print. I, I, my copy of it was expensive to acquire, at least by book standards. I think I paid thirty five dollars for it, which for a book for a a used uh, paperback, which for books these that's a lot. Um, it's like the book that I have on. Uh, Islam and uh, dimitude, which is uh, dimitude is a status of secondary class. You, you know, you'll also 
oftentimes hear supposed scholars of Islam or people that hold themselves up as scholars of Islam, they'll talk about how tolerant the Ottoman Empire was. And I'm fond of pointing out because Ottoman history is something I've read a lot about and just have a particular interest in. Uh, I like to point out that, well, the Ottoman Empire is tolerant if you consider uh, the institutionalized uh, slavery and pillaging and oppression of non-Islamic religions on a massive scale to be friendly and cool and great, well then, yeah, it was a totally tolerant, peaceful empire. But if, if those other things bother you, then the Ottoman Empire should certainly bother you. When they talk about the pluralism that existed within the Ottoman Empire, they are giving you a very revisionist history. Uh, you could, for example, point out that the Janissary program, while it's held up as being the equivalent of getting a you know, a, a scholarship, a scholarship to a top American university, as well as being a, a White House intern or something in the you know, Ottoman uh, equivalent of that. And we're talking about over the course of the Ottoman Empire when they started instituting this program. The reality is that it was taking children away from their families and enslaving them and making them uh, instruments of the state and ripping them from their parents at a very young age. It was just a fancy form of slavery. Never mind the other massive slavery that existed, if nowhere else, and of course it did, but also on the galley ships that were central to Ottoman naval warfare. They used slaves, a lot of them Christian slaves, on the oars. And you can imagine your lifespan if you had people walking around with whips uh, making you a, a effectively a beast of burden at an oar in a warship, and you were chained to that warship, uh, your, your lifespan was not going to be very long. So a lot of slavery and oppression within the Ottoman Empire, although it's of course held up now as the, well, the greatest Islamic civilization really to have ever existed. You could talk about some of the previous caliphates, the uh, Abbasids and uh, the Umayyads, and, and these are all, I think, I'm touching on a lot of stuff here that if you continue to listen to this show, we'll do more deep dives into these areas because this is what was not taught in school, was certainly not taught to me in school, and I studied the Middle East in school formally, uh, not taught and have to find out much more about this on my own. Um, I got on a bit of a tangent here. I was talking to you about uh, infidel, and I was also, uh, oh, I mentioned the God that failed. Oh, Dimitude, sorry. Uh, Dimitude is uh, Islam and Dimitude is a book that I, I think I paid $50 for that one. Not that you care about what I'm paying for books, but the, another one that I think is out of print. Uh, Batyor, Batyor is the, is the author and you go through this and it explains that, yeah, you could have lived in many Islamic societies as a non-Muslim, as a Jew or a Christian, but you had a special form of dress you had to wear. You were a second class citizen. You uh, couldn't bring charges in a court against a Muslim. I mean, there's just you go down the whole list and you go, OK, this is not OK. This is not acceptable. Um, and the fact that this is always skipped over is a scandal. Uh, it is the worst kind of uh, historiography or the worst kind of ch rewriting of history. And it's very annoying to me that, that kids and, and even adults that study this don't get taught the truth. A, a vimmi has to pay a tax called the jizya, and the jizya is a special tax on non-believers, on infidels. And just to understand under classical vimmi regulations, rules, if you stop to pay the jizya, you could be killed. So it was protection money. And it's always talked about like the Ottomans were so thoughtful and kind to their Christian and Jewish subjects. That is a, that is a giant lie. Uh, but a lie that we'll get into more detail on another 
time. I will. I am planning to do entire history segments and maybe even some hours of the show. Maybe on Fridays in the third hour, there'll be history deep dives. This is what this is what you get in the Freedom Hut, my friends. This is what we are heading towards. Not just news of the day, but also the knowledge and the background on issues that will allow you to, first of all, beat everybody else in debates and also to know more about this than you'd get from watching a 30-minute news broadcast. I mean, that's its own thing, but you listen to this show and I promise you, you will know more after the show than you did before it because of the work and the research we put into it. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Infidel is a fantastic book. You learn that she grew up in the oppressive and totalitarian Islamic society of Somalia. And then she moved to Kenya and she lived in Saudi Arabia and also saw different versions of Islamic oppression in those countries. She also underwent, against her will, of course, the process of FGM, uh, which is female genital mutilation. Uh, She writes about this in the book. It is difficult reading. It is important for people to understand what that is and to really read about it from a first-person perspective because it is a widespread practice still in some of the Muslim world, and we are not supposed to talk about it when it is reported on. There are always those who say, oh, this is just defaming Islam, or this is not, this is a tribal practice, this is not an Islamic practice. Well, you look at a majority of the places, and of course this is where some uh, pseudo-intellectual leftists would come along and say, well, not all the places where it happens are Islamic. You look at a vast majority of places where it is conducted, and they are almost entirely Muslim, and it's a much more widespread practice in Egypt than I think anyone wants to know or is willing to talk about. Uh, From there, Ion moves to Germany and then Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, she is uh, given her first glimpse and then lives in what is a free society and realizes that much of what she's been told in these Islamic societies for her young years in her life was a series of lies. There were lies that were told to her. And then she becomes more outspoken about this. She eventually befriends Theo Van Gogh. Theo Van Gogh was executed in the street for making a movie submission, which Ion Hersiali was uh, taking part in. In fact, in the note at the murder scene of Theo Van Gogh that was jammed into his chest with a knife after he'd been killed in the streets of Amsterdam, it was a threat. A threat was uh, stabbed into the chest, a threat naming Ion Hersiali herself. The Dutch, to their everlasting shame, weren't willing to deal with all the threats, the Islamist threats against Ion's life. Despite the fact that she was an elected member of parliament, they just didn't want to deal with it. There is this European uh, willingness, unfortunately, and I think it's starting to go away, but a willingness to be appeasers of Islam instead of standing tall, shoulder to shoulder, shields high against it. She eventually fled to the United States, and when she uh, was, when, since she's been here, she's able to speak freely, and uh, you have to give credit to the American Enterprise Institute for initially sponsoring her to get her over here, and now she's a very important voice in Islamic reform. If we are going to beat these bad guys around the world, we're going to need the help of good guys, good guys from within the Muslim faith, and girls, of course. I mean, guys in the general sense. And Ayan's book, I'm telling you, Infidel, it is uh, it is a very powerful read. Um, and if you can get yourself a copy of uh, The God That Failed about communism and the truth of what it is to be a part of a communist party in a free society and that then becomes a totalitarian society, I'd recommend that too, but that can be tough to track down. Uh, more Buck Books, Another Day, Another Time. Team, I've got to hit this break and we'll be right back. Tim, I thought we'd take a, a little a little break here from the intense stuff. This one comes courtesy of uh, producer Amy over here in the Freedom Hut. So, um, you know, I had a 
I had a, an English nanny growing up, and she lived. Oh, hello. I know Mrs. Doubtfire. She didn't sound like that, though. She was from Liverpool, and I don't know how one would do a liver a Liverpudlian accent. That's how you, that's one from Liverpool is a Liverpudlian. Fun little bit of trivia there. Um, but she, she was a very interesting lady, and she loved the National Enquirer. Fake news, but she loved it. Uh, so I grew up hanging out with a, uh, well, other than my wonderful parents and siblings, but I, we had it for a while, a, a nanny who loved the National Enquirer. And uh, also anything that she saw on TV that was like a limited edition, expensive trinket of some kind, you know, a little a little sterling silver Rolls Royce that you'd see advertised. I don't know if some of you know what I'm talking about. Anything like that. She loved those things, little collectibles. Uh, she lived pretty much entirely on. And when I say entirely, I never saw her eat anything that wasn't uh, porridge, which I believe is actually called cream of wheat. But she does. Oh, it's your, it's your porridge. And uh, also, uh, she liked uh, pound cake. Oh, does anyone have any pound cake? And fried fish uh, fillets. Because in, in England, apparently they pronounce the T. Fried fish fillet. Fried fish fillets. Oh, I've got a fillet. You want, what would you like a fillet, Paco? She called me Bucko. So she also loved Wheel of Fortune. So this reminds me of her. She used to watch Wheel of Fortune all the time. I used to sit there and watch Wheel of Fortune with her. And uh, this is the Wheel of Fortune story. It just got me thinking about the uh, English English nanny I had for a little while growing up. And she, uh, or, or rather, this is this is how it goes. So there's a Wheel, Wheel of Fortune contestant. Uh, early, was this earlier? Oh, no, this is yesterday. Had a streetcar N-A blank E-D desire, of course, trying to get us to, or trying to get the uh, contestant to say the Tennessee Williams play. And... The uh, player here went with a streetcar naked desire. He went for a K instead of an M on that one. And, you know, I just, I want to, I'm going to have to find this clip and check it out because there's no, there's no amusing game show fail, I think, quite as, as awesome as the epic, uh, as the epic Wheel of Fortune fail. Maybe the epic Jeopardy fail, but it's, you don't get as close in, in Jeopardy, unless it's Celebrity Jeopardy, which is still one of the greatest ever. Welcome to Celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, still one of the greatest SNL, continuous SNL sketches of all time, I think. It's really probably Will Ferrell's finest work, in my opinion, or certainly up there with his finest work, along with Old School uh, and other movies that we could talk about another time. But yeah, of course, A Streetcar Named Desire was the was the uh, desired answer there, and uh, that did not work out. But fun, fun to think back to that. Uh, please do, team, uh, go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Click like there, and you can also send me messages and thoughts on today's show. Also, uh, download, subscribe uh, to the podcast on iTunes. Shields high. <laughs>